Thank you so much, Deacon Darren, for leading us in our service. And welcome, family and friends, visitors. Thank you for coming to join us. And we pray that your decision to join us will be blessed by God because God promises there's blessing in listening to His Word and obeying His Word. And as Darren read, we are listening to God's Word in the book of Exodus, recording for us a most momentous event. So let's begin by picking up the story from last week, where it recorded for us the song of Moses and the song of Miriam. And let me begin by this note that I just got. I was just discharged from hospital yesterday after 20 days. COVID is real. I witnessed it firsthand, the real thing. And I must say, I must say the selfless work of our doctors and our nurses and our frontliners is beyond what anyone could ever imagine. Their sacrifices, their attention to you at the bedside for each of the patients, truly you see, you see God in them. My heartfelt appreciation to all the staff in the hospital for the untiring work round the clock. They micromanage every single procedure and beyond. Words are inadequate to describe their sacrifices. Only, only God could repay them for this. God bless all hospital staff and all their immediate families. Please, everyone, take my advice. Stay safe. My health has improved tremendously the last 20 days. I could spend some time motivating the patients in the hospital. Today, I'm fully recovered. Thanks to the best hospital, dare I say, in Malaysia. And that came from somebody in my former hometown, a very small town called Tampin, about 20 miles, 28 miles from Malacca. You would have expected this to come from a first world country like Singapore. And so it would be unthinkable, what would be unthinkable? That you have been spared a life and death situation, spared death. It would have been unthinkable if this man had recovered from COVID-19 and then walked out bad-mouthing the nurses, bad-mouthing the doctors and bad-mouthing the whole hospital that had spent all that time nursing him out of danger. It would have been unthinkable, un unimaginable if he walked away cussing, swearing, posting on social media, cancelling out the doctors and the nurses. Forgetfulness will be a slap in the face of those who went the extra mile to attend to him moment by moment, to nurse him back to health. Ungratefulness would be a U-turn. Ungratefulness will be betrayal of the good intention and actions of the doctors and nurses. I just conducted a funeral, funeral week yesterday. It's not someone that I knew, but the daughter who we came to know on one of our trips to Israel said they needed help. The family was distraught. Of course, family are distraught with the passing away of a loved one. So I conducted the funeral wake of her mother. Death of a loved one usually spirals us downwards. No matter how, how old they have been, how young they have been, they are. We lose direction, we lose hope. So I went to preach as, as best as I could, as faithfully as I could, to proclaim hope, the hope of Jesus to the family. Some were believers, some were not. As I was walking back to the car en route to another appointment yesterday, was just back on back for a few things. This, person, this man ran up to me 
And he was panting away and panting away even more because he tried running with your mask. He's a young man, but he was panting away. And I said, and he introduced himself. I, I said, who are you? I, I, I'm the grandson. I was just there at the funeral wake. I, I actually go to another church, but I'm I've been listening to your podcast over the last X number of years. And I just want to thank you for coming to do my grandma's funeral wake, even though she's not in your church. And I just wanted to encourage you to just keep going, just to keep going, that the ministry of ARPC has blessed so many people. And I said, that's, that's really nice. Thank you so much. Right? Thank you. You didn't have to thank me, but um, yeah, thank you. And I walked back to the car, uplifted, can you imagine a reverse response of this man? Let's say he ran up to me, and then he ran up to me and he elbowed me and he shoved me and he shouted at me, who asked you to come? You don't even know my grandma. And maybe hers was a deathbed conversion, people like you, right? Just forcing the gospel down. Can you imagine if he went then online to tear apart our message and our ministry of funeral ministry of deathbed conversions, it would have been, it would have been unthinkable. It would have been unimaginable. So, what is it that we consider unthinkable and unimaginable? The unthinkable and unimaginable had just happened between God's people and God, recorded for us in the book of Exodus, because we found that at the start of Exodus 15. They sing the praises of their God. They sing of His character. And they sing of two things of Him. His mighty power that drowned out the mightiest army of that time, Pharaoh and the fastest fleet, chariots, which are state-of-the-art technology at that time. And they sing not just of His power, but they sing of His love, His covenant love. And this was for now their collective national experience of national deliverance by God. And so it led to a national song led by Moses and Miriam. And they are to repeat this, remembering the Exodus, remembering the Passover every year. That was the start of Exodus 15. By the time you read the end of Exodus 15, we're going to spend the majority of time today, guess what? They move from praising God to grumbling against God. How quickly they have forgotten their life and death situation, how quickly they've forgotten the song of deliverance they just sang. In modern day terms, right? In modern day terms, this song would have been a one-hit wonder. In modern day terms, Moses and Miriam who penned this song and read and sang this song and the worship leaders of this song would be a flash in the pan. A one-hit wonder and a one album. A one song. What happened? This spiritual U-turn, this tectonic shift, this paradigm shift from praising God to grumbling against God. And so, what happened? A few things happened. And the three things that happened, the things that happened revolve around three incidences. And the three incidences, let me see, let me get this right, revolve around, there's no water at Marah. Recorded for us in chapter 15, verse 22 to 27. There is no food in the desert of sin. What a name to give to the wilderness. Chapter 16, verse 1 to 35. And no water at Rephidim. Chapter 17, verse 1 to 7. 
And when you read these three, four chapters, the main word that keeps coming up, the main theme that keeps coming up is test, testing. And so the big question that will be asked in this portion is, what's the difference between God testing us as the people of God, Israel, and us, Israel, as God's people, testing the God who is unseen, invisible, and the very atrocious, the very extravagant promises He's making us as we walk through a desert experience. And so, that's what we're going to explore. And this is how we're going to explore it between now and June and our church camp. And the purpose of it, the sermons in June is about enduring lessons, enduring gospel lessons. In Exodus 15 to chapter 16, verse, the first part of it, and I'll spend the most part in chapter 15, introduce you to the first part in summary. And then for our discipleship group celebration on June the 2nd, next Wednesday, we invite all of us belonging to the discipleship groups, and if you wanted to tune in, you can join us. We learn about the testing of God, part two. And then next week, we're going to learn about the four fatal dangers that they will face from water, the lack of water, the lack of food, the external enemies, and the internal bickering among them. That'll be June the 6th. And that will lead us straight up to our church camp. And our church camp, we're going to have on the Friday evening at 8pm, with wonderful songs led by guest artists, with testimony, lessons of God as we draw away from Exodus and find its fulfilment in Jesus, lesson of God's people, the enduring lessons that was true of Israel then and true of us as the fulfillment of God's promises in Christ and lessons of God's redemption in that final talk on June 13. And that is just to excite you and to ask you and plead with you to come along and listen to God. And as you listen to God, your life will surely not simply be challenged. Your life will surely be better for it. And so, where do we go from here? We read God's Word. And it starts this way. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, you might want to read with me at home if you can, wherever you're tuning into this. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days. Three days in the wilderness and found no water. And they came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a lug, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. And so what's the rough time frame of this? All this is happening within, as you read the account, within two months after the miraculous exodus. Two months is a very short time to be forgetful of God and ungrateful to God. If you forgot after 20 years, after 30 years, if you forgot in your old age because of dementia and the loss of memory is understandable, but a month or two after God had just miraculously, lovingly delivered you, from national disaster, from national annihilation, 600,000 Israelites on the march. They have been slaves for 430 years. 
This was now their experience on the march. And when we add in women and children and then the livestock, the numbers would swell. And so, by God's grace, you know, before pre-COVID-19, um, our church kept growing, growing, and we went for our church camps in Malaysia each year. That was our spiritual highlight each year. And each year, the numbers went up from 300 to 500 to 800 to 1,000 plus. And by the time we got to 1,000 plus, remember, how many buses did we book? 1,000 plus compared to a million people on the move? Without cars, without buses, without convenience stops, without supermarkets to feed us along the way? Staggering. Three days without water. That's an eyewitness account. Three days without water. This is arguably not, not just being thirsty after you play badminton or tennis or soccer. This is thirsting and wilting and probably dying. And then they do come to this place called Mara. Remember, they are journeying and there's no GPS. There is no map for them. And as they come to Mara, guess what? There is water. And guess what? What? It's undrinkable water. Have you ever been in this position? It is precisely at this point, right, that they start to grumble against Moses, God's chosen leader, to deliver them. A modern-day equivalent of, oh, we're thirsty, we found water. But guess what? It's undrinkable water. A, a modern-day version of this, yes, we found the vaccine. But guess what? The vaccine has expired. It's overdue. And just, you, just in case you think it's a joke, Hong Kong is on the verge, if not already, has to dispose of millions of this because they run a smear campaign against the government, a scare campaign against the government, that this vaccine is going to hurt you more than help you. And so the government has to do away with millions of this, depriving of other nations who couldn't afford this for their citizens. It's a terrible predicament when you have what you think you need, but you can't use it or won't use it. It is at this point Nothing triggers us. What triggered, what triggered you last week? You want to turn around in uh, you know, homes and uh, what triggered you last week? And that could trigger another thing. What triggered you last week? Nothing triggers us more than hopes raised and hopes dashed. We found water, but it's not portable water. It's not drinkable water. And at this point, the Israelites, they cannot take it. They reach their human limit. It is at this point they grumble against Moses. And what could, in one sense, poor Moses, very human Moses, do against this? You see, this is not one complaint. This is not one feedback. This is not one person, two people complain. This is collective national grumbling. He did the only thing that we find him doing throughout the ten plagues, he would always turn to God and say to God, what next? What next? He did the only thing that we saw him doing when he was pinned as the leader between the sea, the Red Sea in front of him, and the army that was bent on annihilating him and all his people that he has lovingly led out, bravely, courageously led out. And so he turns to God. He cries to God. 
You know the word Christ, the echo of that word, the echo of that word in, in Exodus? God heard the cries of His people. And out of His covenant love and out of His compassion, He came and intervened and He rescued them. So God commands Moses, as Moses cries out to him, obviously on behalf of the people, God commands Moses to throw the log into the water. And guess what? The water turns from undrinkable bitter water to drinkable sweet water. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, I'm reading on in the account, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Listen to what? Listen to the voice of God. Previously you listened, thus says Pharaoh. Now you listen to, thus says Yahweh, the Lord. You change your channel. You tune into the one who loves you, not the one who oppresses you. You tune into the one who loves you and has the power to rescue you. Though at times his ways are very unknown to you and me, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep some of his statutes, no friends, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. And here is one of those passages where there is a direct link between obedience and healing and disobedience and sickness. Not every passage carries that. The Bible is a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. doesn't give us a silver bullet to things. But here is a clear passage to God's people in the Exodus experience. And then verse 27. They came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, as they journeyed through the wilderness to Sinai, the mountain that will meet God, the mountain that will usher in the promised land and life with God, they had now to choose. Thus says Pharaoh, now, the big thing, thus says our circumstances. There's no more Pharaoh as an enemy. But our circumstances now seems to be our enemy. The great danger to our walk with God. And if you listen enough to the voices of your circumstances, as you learn from Israel, God's people, our circumstances has a way of shouting to you and making and seducing you to make premature and mistaken conclusions about God. Want me to say that in slow motion for all of us? that if you don't, list, don't have discernment and you listen to the voice of circumstances, and right now the circumstances, we are thirsty. We are dying of thirst. God led us out here to die of thirst. You listen that to long, long enough, you will miss it. You will miss hearing the voice of God. Now thus says our circumstances, that this God led us out here to die. Did you notice? There's irony here in the instrumentation of God, in the instruments of God. He used a deluge of water to drown out their enemies and save them. And now they, are, they think it's the lack of water 
that will kill them. It all hovers around this thing called water. But there are precious lessons of faith. Precious of lessons of faith, for in this account, it is God who was testing his people. And when God tests his people, it is to mold and shape, to discipline them, to elicit and to draw out some things. And so three lessons about what God does when he tests his people. The first lesson when God tests his people would be this. That faith, it is faith in God that makes obedience to God possible. It is faith that unlocks obedience. And so I do not know if you're parent or grandparent of young children, maybe two, three years old, and you're teaching them things, teaching them trust. And one of the things that I used to play when the kids were younger and also with other kids was, you know, kids are younger, get them on the sofa and say, okay, stand here, stand here, that, that, that's here. Yeah, you jump, you jump. And all at the playground, they go to a higher spot, jump, and dad will catch you, mum will catch you, make sure you catch them. Right? And initially, you know, the, the more reticent ones will, will, will look at that and say, no, I'm not going to jump, I'm not going to jump. But after many times of persuasion, after prayer, after the, the, child, the, the child finally jumps. And you make sure you catch him or her. And guess what? They experience the unspeakable joy of what? The unspeakable joy of trusting. That's what it is. It is faith in a parent, faith in a grandparent that makes the obedience to jump totally possible. And we play this as adults, don't we? In our corporate games. We call it the trust fall. You stand backwards, right? On a higher platform and you fall backwards and you hope that those colleagues are not out to get you. Faith in who you trust makes obedience possible. Faith in the object of your trust and the object of Israel's trust was none other. There's, there's none like him. There's none but him. His name is Yahweh. All the fake gods of Egypt were man-made idols. There are no comparison to Yahweh. The second lesson when God tests his people is this. If the first arm of it is faith makes obedience possible, obedience, let me ask you, how do you prove faith? Obedience is the truest expression of faith. You and me can sit here or sit in your room and I could preach it to my heart out. Say, I profess to believe in God. I presume to believe in God. In fact, I can say the Apostles' Creed. I can say whatever creeds, the Nicene Creed, I believe in God. I can almost sing, I believe. You know, that's the, the creed that we sing. I believe this about God. I believe that about God. But ultimately, the truest expression of faith is actually obedience. And where did you see this? Don't forget this is the one story of the one God, of the one way of redemption. And that story began for the Israelites. They were called Abraham, the father of faith, the father of Israel. And God called to Abraham, do you remember in Genesis chapter 12? Leave your country, leave your people, and leave your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. And it says in Genesis chapter 12 verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord told him. I do not know 
Which one of this have you left? Have you left all three completely at one go? You leave your country, you leave your people that you're familiar with, you grew up with, you went to school, where you find your identity and your security, and you leave your family, you leave all your human familiarities and you leave all your human securities. How hard it is to leave. And my mind takes me back to the farewell scene at the airport, where that 17, 18 years old, I had to go overseas as a young Malaysian man for my tertiary education because the hope of me getting into a local university was next to zero. It was zero. In our class of 40 students, right, one of us made it to university. Not because we lacked the degree, but because the education policy was just skewed. And so the farewell scene at the airport. Have you seen those scenes? You may have experienced it yourself where parents are saying goodbye to, a, to their children, they're going overseas to study, their first slot, and the prospect of perhaps not seeing them again. When, when I went overseas, it was a one-way ticket, as it were, because that's all we bought. And my dad was close to 70, and he had a weak heart. He had multiple other illnesses. But he was a dad who came from China, and we never expressed love in terms of hugging but I just inch up to him and he inched closer and I just hugged him with everything that I had. I said, thanks, Dad, because you borrowed money to send me overseas. I'll make good. I'll make good. You know how hard it is? Have you ever left country, people, your father's household? The truest expression of faith is actually obedience. And you will see this again and again. And for Abraham, he left. And then finally, after waiting for about 25 years, God gives him the son, gives him and Sarai the son they've been waiting for. Father of many nations, but not a single son in his old age. And then after he gets the son, God says to him, I want you to bring Isaac and go to that mountain and on that mountain, you offer a sacrifice. And you read that account in Genesis, and he goes there, and he, he unsheaths the flint knife. He's about to plunge it in. And then God shows him a lamb that was stuck in the thicket. From the patriarchs to the nation is the same, the one story of the one God, of the one way of salvation that the truest expression of faith is stepping out in obedience. But when you combine the two, faith expressed in obedience brings it to a triplet. And what is the triplet? Then when God tests us, it is to do this. When God tests us, it is to nurture and to draw out and to elicit and to build up faith expressed in obedience for our blessings. And where do we see this? Again, where it all started in Genesis, because as Abraham left his country, his countrymen, and his household, God will bless him with land. God will bless him with descendants, as much as the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. And God will bless him with global blessings. All who bless Abraham will be blessed, and all who curse him will be cursed. It is that same God with the same promises that is now seeing it true 
not simply for four patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, but for their descendants, which now number at least in a million. And so God tests us to draw out faith and obedience for our blessing. But you notice this whole incident at Marah? Did you notice? Three days they journeyed without water. They found the water. And guess what? It's not drinkable. And they reached their human limit. Remember that? This will be the perpetual choice of Israel in a relationship with God. And what is the perpetual choice? Season by season, year by year, day by day, moment by moment, episode by episode, this will be the choice. Israel had to choose whether she would complain her way all the way to the promised land or obey God all the way to the promised land. If you are slightly more cluey spiritually, or use a big word, theologically, biblically, they surely couldn't grumble and complain and quarrel their way to the promised land. Indeed, they will grumble and complain their way out of the land. The only way in is by faith expressed in obedience that would unlock God's blessing firstly given to Abraham and then experienced in their life again and again. You know what? As you read the story here, in verse 27 it says, if only they had just persevered a little bit more, if only they persevered a little bit more, they would have come to in the desert. Have you ever been to a desert? I highly recommend you go. If there's a post-COVID and travel comes back to you again, come back to all of us again. So I was preaching in Kenya and on route back from Kenya, I stopped by Dubai and you know, went there and experienced what life was out in, in the desert. It's beautiful when there are no storms, no sandstorms. But in the desert, my friends, in the desert, the number one thing you are looking for is an oasis. And so here is Israel on the move in the wilderness. Three days without water, three days without water, and little did they know that under the good heart of God and the good intentions of God, just round the corner, they will come around to what? They will come around to 12 springs and 70 palm trees. That's a very huge oasis. If only they had just persevered. They were so near, yet so far. And that will constantly be the spiritual dilemma, the spiritual choice they make of not trusting God to the end limit, that God's blessing was just around the corner. So near, sorry, not so neat. So near, yet so far. That God's 12 springs and 70 palms were just around the corner. But because they listened to the voice of circumstance speak to them, more than the heart of God through the voice of God speak to them. I'm a good God and I've got good intentions. They couldn't carry on. And so, we visited some close friends on our trip to the UK for one of my preaching trips there. And Mona visited one of her best friends in England and she lives at a place close to uh, what we call Shropshire. I don't know how to pronounce it. And we, she kindly wanted to take us for a walk. 
to a beautiful uh, spot, a mountain, to take a look at the view. I wasn't feeling really good that day. And added to that, the, it was typical British weather, which means overcast, gloomy, and slightly drizzle, right, drizzly. And you know, but I, okay, let's take a look. Let's walk up this little mountain and take a look at the view. And you always start fresh. But then tiredness creeps in, and because I wasn't feeling too well, with every step that I took, I remember my attitude. The grumbling increased in my heart, right? But the, and the fake smile, the frozen smile on our face, on my face, grew more and more stiff. And I was still in that mood. You know, you have been there before. The grumbling in your heart is louder. The fake smile on your face is more and more stiffened as people take you to see this or see that, right? When you go overseas or something. And I was still looking down and boy, when I look up, we were at the top. And as we got to the top, my goodness, the view was stunning. And guess what was my response? Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry, God. In my own heart. We're always so near yet so far. We can't see the good intentions of... If you can't see the good intentions of friends, is one thing. You can't see the good intentions of God and you start to cross the line and start to blame Him for your circumstances and your possible risks and danger. The Twelve Springs and Sunny Palms were just around the corner. And again and again in Israel's walk with God, she would do this. She would come so close to the Promised Land, but because she grumbled, it was perhaps a three days journey, less than a week. Boy, it turned up to 40 years. So near, yet so far. And I just want us to pause here to think. You think back over your life and my life. And you think back if you have a relationship with God. So many of the moments in life were like that. Where you chose to grumble, to complain instead of chose to obey. And you start to think of the worst of God's people, of God's leaders, of God's sovereign hand over your circumstances. You start to think the worst of God. And how might it work out? You could be a teenager who grew up in a Christian home. You enjoyed you, you fellowship. You enjoyed so many things. And then your walk with God has been so good and things have been going so well. Then all of a sudden, either you fail your first exam because you are a bright student all this time. You never face your first exam. Or you're now in your teenage years and you got infatuated, attracted to a girl. And, you know, she turned you down and you've never faced a rejection in your life. And because of that, you... You know, you, you prayed to God about the exam. You prayed to God about this BGR, the boy-girl relationship. You never face failure or rejection in your life. You, you, after waiting, you throw God out. The whole past, who has been faithful to you, the whole future that was so promising, and you go on a downhill spiral, on a downhill spiral. Are some of you there as youth? You're so near yet so far. And I want to say to you that Satan has a way of, of whispering the wrong things from your circumstances to you. That you take, you take a temporary setback as the permanent bad plans of God. A temporary setback is to discipline you, is to mature you, 
is to elicit and, and, and draw out from you faith expressed in obedience for God's blessing. But you misread it from your circumstances. Thus says my circumstances that God is a bad God. And you could multiply that and go into your adult years as parents with children. And you might look at some of your children and say, these are not the children I deserve. These are really difficult children. These are underperforming children. And some of us are most tempted to give out the marriage or some of us have already walked out. I'm going to start my life all over again. A happier marriage with someone I really love and smarter children or better children. You know, by God's grace, in some of my travels, I meet the young folks where the parents have walked out. Right? Yes, I, I was really recalcitrant when I was young, some of them might say. I was really a naughty boy in, in children's church. <laughs> One day somebody came to our service. Look at him. Yeah, I knew him from another church. His parents had told me he, every week he would give grief to the Sunday school teachers. And now he had blossomed to be a man of God. And he was in charge of the children's ministry. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? But for a father and mother to walk out, the 12 springs and 70 palms was just around the corner. But you took wisdom into your own hands. And you concluded from your circumstances, shouting into your ears, no, no, no. And what might it be if you're single? That the bio clock is carrying on. And so I'm, I'm desperate. I'm just, I, just, I just want to marry whoever is willing to marry me. And it could be the 12 springs and 70 palms around the corner. The person that you chose is not a believer. I want to say to you, that usually doesn't turn out very well. In very exceptional circumstances, it turns out well. He may or she may become a believer, but that's very rare. And that's, in one sense, tempting God. You could be in your old age now. And you did so much for your work. And you did so much in your ministry. You indeed actually did so much missions work. But as you grow older, youth in your church thinks that you're just a grow a grand old uncle who knows nothing. And you're about to give up the 12 springs and the 70 palms. We've got to remember that. So near yet so far. And that's the journey of faith. That faith has three dimensions to it. That faith is expressed in obedience for our blessing. At times, though, we short-circuit that. And then very quickly in summary, chapter 16, they set up from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the, seventh month, of the second month, sorry, after they departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people, the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly. Previously, you wanted to kill us with thirst, and now you want to kill us with hunger. That's the second danger that they face. More about that in detail when you come to join us in our DG celebration. Ha, ah, that's a cliffhanger. But I give you four things that I pull out in summary for that. 
and we'll explore this a bit more. The four set truths when instead of God rightly testing us, we wrongly, illegitimately test God. And the four set truths when we test God is firstly, we put God on probation. In now this very dicey COVID situation where governments have the balance between saving lives medically, physically, and saving livelihoods and jobs without clamping down for too long before people in certain industries, beginning with the airline industry and the hospitality and the tourism industry, totally dies off. It's not easy, friends. You've got a job. If you started a job during COVID-19, you put them on probation. On probation, it means you've got to keep performing. And so we put God, Israel put God on probation. They withheld trust, pending more evidence. And they for, forgot God's past action. Didn't they just experience barely two months ago? God's mighty hand called the Exodus, delivering them from Pharaoh and Egypt. So they forget God's past actions and they question His present inaction. And the long and short of that was challenging God to prove Himself again and again and again. I want to say to you, if you conduct your marriage relationship this way, if Mona says to me, prove that you love me, Chris. Prove that you love me, Chris. I mean, once or twice a year for the anniversary or the birthday is fine. But if I have to prove my love to her every day, right? Instead of accepting the fact that I'm still here, aren't I, Mona? Have I failed you? Have I gone off somewhere else? I'm back for every meal. Actually, she tells me, please go out and have more meals outside, pre-COVID. I have breakfast with you, I have dinner with you, I have lunch with you. But the ultimate thing to look out for is this. Our testing of God is deeply sinful when you add the four set truths together. And this is actually a quotation if you have read the recommended commentary by Alec Moitier. I take that phrase from him. Any testing of God, all testing of God, our testing of God is wrong, is mistaken, is deeply sinful as experienced in the life of Israel at this moment. So what are the lessons we must draw together? What's the difference between God testing us and us testing God? I hope by now in listening to this for the last 30 minutes or so, it would have become clearer. What's the difference? There's a huge world of difference, right? The huge world of difference is God tests us to draw out faith expressed in obedience for our blessing. But when we test God, we challenge Him again and again, prove yourself, prove yourself repeatedly to our detriment. And you need to ask yourself the honest question, no matter how tough your circumstances, no matter how much pain, no matter how prolonged it is, who has the right to test whom? And I hope we can all reach the conclusion that God has the right to test us. Who are we, tiny, puny, fickle we, to test the almighty good God? And when we come to the fulfillment in the second exodus, 
in the second Moses, Jesus delivering us, not from a temporary human oppressor, but Satan, the number one oppressor. And how does he oppress us? He oppresses us by tempting us to sin. Whatever you don't know about sin, sin oppresses you, right? You know the sinful thought that you have? It oppresses you. The sinful feeling that you have, the sinful, the sinful attraction that you have, it, it oppresses you. You are enslaved to the fear of death. And Jesus has come as the second Moses for the final exodus. And we now listen to God's final word to us in Him. And as we listen to Jesus bleeding, dying on the cross, rising powerfully to destroy the devil's work, to forgive you of your rebellion, to absorb God's wrath on your behalf, and to plead that you are the children of God, to make something of your meaningless life, to make something of your meaningless suffering. There is meaning in suffering when you give your life to Jesus. Then we cannot afford three things. We cannot afford to be forgetful of Jesus and the cross. You cannot afford to be ungrateful to Jesus and the cross. And you cannot afford to be disobedient to Jesus and the cross. And over the next five, six sermons, we're going to tease that out a lot more from how we may be tempted to be forgetful of Jesus and the cross, to be ungrateful to Him, all the way from social media, where there's so much a culture of cancelling God, of speaking against the church, all the isms that are out there, from humanism to feminism, that challenges us to our ultimate commitment. Christ, the gospel. There is only one way to be safe. It is Jesus and the cross. And to be unashamed of that. And on the personal level, how might we be tempted to be forgetful? How might we be tempted to be ungrateful? How might we be tempted to be disobedient? I've just come back just in time from my duties as the moderator of the Presbyter English Presbytery here in Singapore. Just conducted an ordination service that one of our preachers has just been ordained to be a full-time, full-fledged minister of the gospel. Right? And his life story, let me pick it up and get it for you. He got his calling into salvation in Malaysia where he grew up, calling into the ministry many years ago. And he really wanted to serve God, but the first child was autistic and quite badly autistic. And so he delayed his calling to look after this child. And now the child is a teenager, still a handful. But with the support of his wife, he's finally made it into serving God full time blessed with two other kids. And then I got his pastor because I was preaching the message at the service. I got his pastor to write for me what he knows about this person, this pastor. And the pastor says, I've yet to see a more committed, a more committed pastor and Christian than him. How he has relied on the grace of God daily. I also experience him as a humble co-worker willing to listen to the advice of others, and he's a very gifted preacher. A very 
severely handicapped child, which is still a handful for him, has not made him forgetful of God, ungrateful to Jesus, disobedient to the good Lord who laid down his life for him. He doesn't listen to, thus says the world, thus says my circumstances, thus says the condition of my marriage, thus says the thermometer of my children, the barometer of my children, how they are turning out. It's thus says Jesus to me. And when you turn to Jesus, even the brokenness and ugliness of your life can turn beautiful. The 12 springs and the 70 palms are around the corner. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. The lie of Satan is, there is no such place. There is no such person. And if there was, you're not going to get there. We reject the evil one. We listen to our Lord Jesus. Speak the good news to us. And no matter how many tears we cry, and no matter how many daggers have been fired at us, front or back, no matter how weakened we are in our knees, no matter how afraid I am to wake up sometimes as a pastor, I wake up and I stand here courageous, strengthened by the Spirit of God. We will arrive there. This is how God tests His people unto our blessing unto his glory.